Well, in chapters 2 and 3, we looked at the seven churches. In chapter 4, John says that he is taken, called up into heaven. And he is going to receive revelation while he's in heaven. We get a picture of what he sees in chapter 4. We've, we've seen some amazing things as we've gotten through the first few verses of chapter 4. We're going to, I'm going to start reading at verse 5 of chapter 4, just a very brief review for a couple things. But I say this every time I talk about Revelation. There is a lot of symbolism. That's okay. Some of it we can kind of understand. Some of it we can make very, very educated assumptions about based on the Word of God. Some things we don't really know. And all the experts out there that tell you they do are hopeful that they're correct. And there are some things that even today we're going to look at that I really don't have any idea what they really represent. I could share some opinion, but the reality is God will reveal to us what he wants to reveal to us. When we get to the scroll with the seven seals, we realize that there's a clear picture for us. There's been something sealed up in that scroll for a long, long time that no one knows and no one's seen. And they're not going to see it until it's opened and revealed to us. And I believe there's other things like that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says these words, the secret things of God are God's. And we got to be okay with that. And most of the time I am. Some of the time I'm not quite as satisfied, but I get over it. In Revelation chapter 4, Starting in verse 5, it says this, And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes, front and back. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. That's interesting. What we understand for sure is there is an awesome awe and power emanating from the throne. We talked about the the brightness of the lightnings, the colors the jasper and the sardisium. We talk about here, they mention, there's the sea as of glass, like crystal. And, and it's an interesting concept when you think of it. When you think of crystal, you think of pure, clear glass, which quite honestly, at the time, in the biblical times, there wasn't such a thing. They had glass, but it was always foggy and not clear. And he's looking at this, and that's the image he's seeing. The image of purity, even holiness, if you would. And he is seeing all of these things. And then it comes to those creatures, those four creatures. And those four creatures, I think we can best make a good guess or assumption if we go back into Ezekiel. I'm not going to turn to the scriptures, but if you want to just make a note, Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, we get introduced to these creatures. And most people would say that they're the same creatures that John saw, even though they see them a little differently. When Ezekiel is reading this or seeing this vision and, having, and prophesying what he's seeing, he's seeing these creatures 
with all four faces on each creature. One like, like an ox or a calf. One like an eagle. One like a, what was it, a man. Which one did I miss? The lion. How could I miss the lion? All four. And, and when John says what he's seeing, it's almost as if he's only maybe seeing him from one side so he doesn't see all four faces. But we don't know that for t- total surety, but it would seem when you look at Ezekiel's picture and what, what, what John is seeing here in heaven, we get an idea. Now, you can imagine the, the assumptions that are being made about what those things represent. I mean, these creatures with all the wings and there's eyes all over the underside of the wings, the top of the, there's eyes everywhere, which would seem to give us an, a symbol or an image of all-seeing, all-knowing, all-understanding. But then we have the faces, the man, the ox or the calf, the eagle, the lion, and there's so many assumptions. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's a couple of things that I thought were kind of interesting when you talk about the four faces. Some of them say that each face represents one of the four Gospels. And when they say that, they're saying they're looking at Matthew and they're looking at the the context of Matthew and they're saying, the Lion of Judah, therefore the lion, the face of the lion. And Mark, the ox or the calf, Jesus, the humble servant in the Gospel of Mark. In Luke, they say it's the man, Jesus, the perfect man, as you read the Gospel of Luke. And in John, the eagle, the man from heaven, came to earth. Is that what it means? I don't know. But it's interesting when you read them and you read those Gospels, you see a different emphasis in each Gospel from a perspective of each different writer given by the Holy Spirit. There's another one I want to share with you that says that they are representative of all creation. I thought this was interesting. The lion, the mightiest of all the wild animals. So the lion represents that part of God's creation. They say the ox is the strongest of the domesticated animals. We've got the wild animals. Now we've got the domesticated animals. The eagle, the king of all the birds. So we've got all the birds that fly in the air. And then, of course, man, the highest of all creation. And you could go on and on with what other people think those four things represent. And we really don't know for sure. But one thing we do know for sure when we read it here we understand that all of them are placed under the throne of God. None of them are equal to or above the throne of God. As amazing they are, as they are, the occupant on the throne of God is still above all things. And then starting in verse 8b, the last half of verse 8, it says this, And day and night they do not cease to say, and this is in regard to the four living creatures, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their, throne, their crowns before the throne. Holy, holy, holy. declaring and worshiping God. So whatever these creatures are, one thing we know for sure 
is they worship God. They worship the Lord God Almighty. Almighty. You know, there's one definition when you look in the lexicons that says that word in the Greek means he who has their fingers on everything. Worshiping the Lord God Almighty. He is sovereign. He is in charge, knows all things, is all things, all-powerful God. And then we see an aspect of his eternal being, who was and is and is to come. We see all these things being reaffirmed again that have been made clear to us in the scriptures and other places throughout the Bible. And I just want to remind us, this is the scene that's taking place in heaven. And this is something that we don't see a lot of in the rest of the word of God, descriptions of what's in heaven, what, it take, what takes place in heaven. We read a lot of books about it, written by a lot of men, and I'm not sure where they get all their revelation, but this we know to be true. It's from the word of God. It's from him who sits on the throne. And the 24 elders, I talked a little bit about them last week. The question often is, who are they? And I think I mentioned this last week. Again, we don't know for sure. There again are a lot of people who think different things about who they are and what they represent. One of the more common ones is the 24 are the 12 from the tribes of Israel plus the 12 disciples. Again, could be true. We don't know. But again, what we do know is they get out of their thrones and they put their crowns before the Lord and they worship him. There is another explanation that some people think they are representative of the entire church. And again, all of these fall a little bit short of having enough scriptural support to say yes. But I got to tell you, I kind of like that one for a number of reasons. One or two we'll see in just a minute. But if it's representative of the entire church, if you're of the position that I am, and you may or may not be, that the church was raptured when John was taken to heaven, I think they very easily could be representative of the entire church. And the way they act and some of the things that they know, we'll see as we go a little bit forward, are things that have been revealed to the church. And we see that they worship God and cast their crowns before the throne. God always receives the glory, all the honor, all the praise, because he's the only one worthy of that. And it's at this point in the end of chapter 4, beginning in chapter 5, we're still in heaven. John is still getting a view and picture of what's taking place in heaven and what's in heaven. But his focus changes. It's easy for us to get distracted with all those things we really don't understand in chapter 4. And we need to come back and say, what was John focused on? He was focused on two things, primarily, maybe a third. He was focused on the throne, the occupant of the throne, and the praise and worship that was given to the person on the throne. That's really the emphasis. But now in chapter 5, it's like his focus shifts just a little bit. And now the focus is going to become a scroll or a book. Some of your translations say book. A scroll that's in the right hand of he who sits on the throne and on the Lamb of God, the only one worthy to open the scroll. So his focus shifts just a little bit as we look into chapter 5. And starting in verse 1, it says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside 
and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I think there is significance to some of the things we see even in that short verse, one in the right hand. The right hand of God is representative of his authority and of his power. Whatever is in that, that scroll comes with the authority of God behind it. Whatever is written, things that need to be accomplished, come with the authority and power of God behind it. The scroll in his right hand. And it's written inside and out. And right away, again, all kinds of speculation of what's written in the scroll. One thing that's interesting, a scroll in those days was never written on the back side. It was just written on the one side. So you'd open the scroll, and actually you read it in columns up and down. You'd open it a little bit, read the columns, close it, open it a little bit more, read the columns. And in that time, in Roman times that they're in, it was very traditional and actually legal if a will, a legal document was being written in a scroll, it would be sealed with seven seals. And the seals would be a string wrapped around it, little knot, and then sealed with a wax. And oftentimes and usually with the signet ring of whoever the representative was that was sealing that particular seal. And there were seven because they required seven people that could attest to what was being written in that will. So if I was going to write a will for my family or for whoever it would be, I would bring in seven witnesses. We would write out my will, and then we would seal it with seven strings, and each one of those witnesses would put their seal upon it. So this is kind of the picture that's being given of this scroll with the seven seals. And what we know is there is no way that that scroll or that book can be read until all those seals are broken and opened. So he sees this in the right hand of God, sealed up with the seven seals. And as I said, most, like men are, we want to know what's in the book. What's it represent? And again, there are all kinds of things you could look online and look into different theological books. And Some people think it's the Old Testament written. Some people think it's the New Testament written. Some people think it's the Old Testament and the New Testament written. Some people think it's all of the fulfilled prophecies written down. Some people think it's a will for God taking back the earth. That one confuses me because I don't think he ever gave up ownership. He gave up government, but he never gave up ownership. But you can see there's so many things that man loves to speculate, like what's in the scroll. But once again, the focus is this. The focus of chapter 5 is not what's written in the scroll. The focus is on those seven seals and the one who can open it, the one who's worthy. All of the other speculations, that's, that's fine. Go ahead. But that's what John is focused on, and I believe, therefore, that's what God is revealing to him, what those seals represent and who can open the book. In, Re- in Revelation 5, reading at verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book? and to break its seal. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. 
a strong angel. I don't know if that means there's weak angels or not, but this was a strong angel. And this strong angel is proclaiming something, and he's almost proclaiming it as a challenge when I read it. Who is worthy to open this book? And it's if all of creation was standing there and waiting and looking around. It's like if one of you had the key to unlock the box that was sitting up here, and I said, one of you, there's got to be somebody here. We wouldn't have the box. Who has the key to open this box? And we'd all sit and look. And here, all of creation, it says, all of creation, no one is worthy to open the book. And there's a, a point to be really noticed there. There is nothing created that's worthy. Nothing. No man, nothing. No angel could open the book. No prophet, Old Testament or not, could open the book. No creatures, no powers, no demons, no fallen angels, not Satan. No one created can open the book. That narrows it real quickly to only one. And we see that John begins to weep. And I ask myself, what's he weeping about? I understand that there's this book and it's in the right hand of the occupant of the throne, God himself. But he said, no one's there, no one, no one, and he just starts weeping. And again, it doesn't tell us why exactly, but again, in my mind, I tried to think, you know, if I'm John, back in chapter 4, he was, he was promised that what was going to take place after this was going to be revealed to him. And the next thing he sees is the throne of God. He sees all this amazing light and color, the thunder and the lightnings. He sees these creatures. He sees the elders. He sees their crowns. He sees all this worship. He hears all this worship. I can only imagine, and I'd be going, wow, what's next? And all of a sudden, there's no one to open the scroll. I don't know if that's why he's crying, but it says he is weeping. In verse 5, he gets informed. And I think it's significant about who does the informing. As I start reading in verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if it was slain, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I think it's significant that one of the elders had revelation. It had been revealed to him that there was one worthy. And then we see two Old Testament names of the Messiah, the the lion, the one from the tribe of the Lion of Judah coming, the Messiah. We see the Root of David, another Old Testament prophetic name of the Messiah. And he is declaring this, this elder. And if you would happen to like my position on who the 24 elders are, 
This is one of the reasons I think it may be representative of the entire church. Because the one who is worthy to open the scroll, to take it from the Father's hands, is Jesus. And he has been revealed to his church. We have had it revealed to us who Jesus is, how he came to earth, all that he did, and that he went to the cross and he suffered and died for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins. But death couldn't hold him. The third day he was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven and is seated with the Father at his right hand. That has been revealed to us as the church. I may be wrong in my position, but I do know that it tells us one of the elders spoke up. And he says, the one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he sees the lamb standing before, this, before the throne or in the midst of this, but he's standing as slain. One, he is standing. He's alive. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He is alive. We serve a living God. He is standing before the throne, but it's just so amazing to me that even as the lamb representing Jesus is standing before the throne, his wounds are still evident. His wounds that he suffered and that he endured on that cross are still evident. And the thing that really strikes me about that is the price that Jesus paid for our sins is continually before the Father. It's not as if he could forget, but it's a continual picture and reminder when he looks at you and me with all our false mistakes. He's reminded of the blood of Jesus and he sees you and me as born-again believers, pure and holy and righteous because of that blood of the lamb that's slain. And, And John is getting to see all of this in heaven, seeing all of these things. And then he sees, and again, we can get so hung up on some of the symbolism representation here, but just think the seven horns pretty weird-looking sheep, weird-looking lamb. The seven is that number we see throughout the revelation, especially of perfection or completion. The horns are used over and over as a symbol of strength, power. And here we see on this lamb that was slain the symbol of perfect power, perfect strength. In other words, the omnipotent God. And then it talks about the seven eyes. And it tells us that they represent the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits which represent the Holy Spirit traveling throughout the world, throughout the earth. Again, it gives us a picture of Jesus, of omniscience and omnipresence. These eyes, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-wisdom, all-understanding, and they, what's it say? Traveling throughout the earth, present everywhere. It seems to me right here with these two crazy symbols, the seven horns and the seven eyes, we see the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the omnipresence of God pictured in Jesus. Which to me is a powerful affirmation of the deity of Jesus, that he is God, even as he was man.
verse 7, it said that he came and he took it out of the right hand of God. I don't want to make more out of it than it is, but boy, wouldn't that take a lot of boldness. Right hand of God has got a hold of this scroll and you just walk up and take it. You better know who you are. And he was worthy. He was the only one. No created being was found worthy, but Jesus, the Lamb, was found worthy. And then what takes place following? So have that scene in mind. All of this magnificent things that he's seen taking place in heaven, he now has seen this scroll, seven-sealed scroll in in God's hands. And no created creature or being could open it, but there was one who was found worthy, and that was the Lamb standing as if slain. And in Revelation 5.8, we see an immediate response take place. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God better word there is redeemed, if you look at the word that's translated. But you were purchased for God, redeemed for God with your blood from every tribe, every tongue, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Immediately, when they recognized that the one who was worthy took the scroll, they fell to their faces and worshipped God and the Lamb which if the Lamb and God are not both God, that would be idolatry. So once again, I believe we see clearly the deity of Jesus. He is God, the Son. The one on the throne is God, the Father. And the one that we see mentioned as the seven spirits is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Seen. And for all of our musicians... And some of us that might have came from churches that said musical instruments are just not godly. Especially those stringed ones. They're from hell. I think a harp is stringed. And there are harps in heaven. And this you can see obviously is probably the verse that we get all those pictures of angels playing harps. I don't know if any of that's really taking place. But there are harps in heaven. Musical instruments in heaven. That's good news. That's a little sidebar. What I really want to focus on is what else they see. They see golden bowls. Full of the prayers of the saints. I knew I'd struggle with this. You know, sometimes when we go through something like we went through, praying for Emily, we pray... And we pray, and we pray. And then when we're done, we pray and pray and pray. And then it doesn't turn out the way we want it. It's easy for doubts and questions to come into our minds. The enemy would love to get you and I to start believing lies like, prayer didn't work. God doesn't hear your prayers. You're wasting your time. Look what happened. The enemy would love to do that. One, because he knows what damage it would do to us. 
But two, he hates us praying because he sees and knows and recognizes how God sees our prayers. We see there in a golden bowl, a golden censer, the value, the worth of our prayers to our Heavenly Father. He treasures them. He says it's like incense, a sweet aroma that ascends to his throne. It just because sometimes our prayers aren't answered the way we think they're supposed to be is a reminder for us that we're not God. And we need to trust Him, even in the worst of situations. And we need to resist the lies of the enemy who would cause us in any way, shape, or form to diminish the power and the importance of our prayers. Prayer is a critical part of the Christian life. It's communicating with God, our Creator. And it's been made possible for us through the Lamb of God. There is no mediator necessary for you and I to go to God except Jesus Christ. Notice that these 24 elders, whoever they are, didn't intercede for the saints. They weren't mediators for the saints. All they did was present the prayers. I know there are some of us that come from churches where there's all these different mediators that we're supposed to pray to. It's not biblical. There is only one mediator. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, it says it so clearly. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. That's it. If you have been born again by the Spirit of God, accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you and I have access to the throne of God. Prayer brings intimacy. Prayer is fellowship. You know, one of the things that's lacking so often in a Christian's life, and my own life, I read, and I love to study, but sometimes prayer is just hard work. And sometimes you can find yourself questioning, is it doing any good anyway? It's fallen under the snare of the devil. He wants us to continue to pray. Just because our prayers didn't turn out the way we wanted, we keep praying. Brandon and his family need our prayers more than, now more than ever. We need to keep praying. We keep believing. We stand on the word of God. We know what the word says. We pray. And we have this picture of our prayers as incense ascending to the Father from a golden bowl. God wants our prayers. There's been a lot of tears shed in the last week or two in this scenario, and I know we all go through different scenarios. But I also claim the scripture that says God collects our tears in a bottle. You know, the scripture that says, I want you to be aware that we don't grieve like those that have no hope. It doesn't say we don't grieve. We just don't grieve like they do. So we need to be aware when things like this happen. God's still in charge. He's still God. We're not. And we need to make sure that we recognize when the enemy is trying to catch us in a snare. Trying to cause us to doubt. 
fear creeping in where faith belongs. We need to recognize that and stand firm on the word of God no matter what. Verse 9. It says in verse 9, the four living creatures and the 24 elves fall to the fall before the Lord, each one having a harp and golden bowls. And then it says they sang a new song. Now I think, based on what follows, and notice I said think, I don't think both the creatures and the elders sing this new song. I think it's the elders. And it's another reason why I think it's very well could be the church. Because look at what they sing. Worthy art thou to take the books and to break its seals, for you were slain and did purchase for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you has made them to be a king and to priests, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Look at what those words are talking about. They're talking about redemption. They're talking about being redeemed. As far as I can tell in scriptures, the only creatures that God created that are being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are people, not angels, not creatures with four different faces. I believe the 24 elders are worshiping and they're singing a song of redemption and they're declaring that only one is worthy. And why is he worthy? Because he was the one that was slain. He was the one that redeemed us by his blood. If you were here last week, you know the significance of that. (laughs) Turning off my mic before I do that. It says, it's available to all. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's available to all. The redemptive power of the blood of Jesus Christ is available to all, but not all will receive it and accept it. Not everybody's going to go to heaven. Not everybody's going to be saved. Even though he desires that none should perish. Some still will reject Christ. But it's available to all men. And he's made them to be a kingdom. You know, we're not just being set free, which is great. We were set free. We are set free. But he says, I'm going to make you priests. What did priests have? They had the access to God. It's what I just finished talking about. He's going to make us priests. We can go directly to God. No intermediary necessary because of Christ. And then he says, and you will reign upon the earth. We will reign, we will have power, and we will have authority over the world. We can overcome the world, and we can overcome the evil one because of Christ. Because I believe this is such a song of redemption, I believe it's being sung by the the 24 elders, and then the angels and the creatures respond in verse 11 and 12. It's as if the angels are watching what's taking place. And if you remember, it said there's thousands and thousands, tens of thousands and tens of thousands, myriads, whatever that is, of angels. And it's like all of a sudden they're watching what's taking place and they see and hear the 24 elders around the throne. And they says this, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. So now this, I believe, is the angels responding to the song of redemption by the 24 elders. And they're saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And then notice, 
and I don't believe it's a coincidence, there's seven attributes. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Perfect, complete praise and adoration coming from the angels. So we have 24 elders, a song of redemption. Thousands upon ten thousands of angels singing these songs of praise. And then the choir gets even bigger. And every created thing, verse 13, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. 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 And the elders fell down and worshipped. Every creature, every creature recognizes, and there will come a day when every creature not only recognizes but acknowledges and has to bow before the Messiah, the Son of God. All blessing and honor given to him. And the four living creatures acknowledge forever and ever So if you wonder a little bit what heaven's going to be like, this is going to be happening forever and ever. It's a taste. It's what God's chosen to reveal to us about heaven here in these chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And we see the creatures. All they could do in response was just, Amen! 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 Let it be, so let it be. Yes, we agree. Let it happen. And that's all they could do over and over. And then it gets a little bit tougher as we go through the rest of Revelation. You'll see as we start into chapter 6, the focus, as I said, was on the seals, on that scroll, and the one who could open it. And the seals are going to be opened one at a time. And really what it is, I believe, when those seals begin to be opened, it's a beginning of a seven-year time frame that we often hear called the tribulation. So the seven years of tribulation are about to begin. And they're going to begin right away when that first seal is opened. But that's for another day. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to give us revelation and give us understanding. Father, I pray that if there's anything I've said that is worthless and of no value, it would fall to the ground and be worthless and of no value. But I ask the Holy Spirit to continue to give us revelation, give us greater understanding of what we're reading, what, we're, what will you want us to understand. God, that we would be, we would be even more in awe of you, more in awe of what you have planned for your people, that we would be more in awe of the eternity that we're going to spend in your presence in heaven. Father, I pray as we continue to go forward through the book of Revelation, 
that we gain an urgency in our hearts to share the good news of the gospel. Father, that it would increase in each one of us that need to share the good news of the gospel to all that you would bring across our paths. That we would be a people in the church, outward focused, wanting to see people come to Christ and to advance the kingdom. And we pray, Father, that you would help us never to fall into a slumber like we saw in some of those churches, like Laodicea, that we would never be lukewarm. And Father, we just continue to pray for, again, for the Hissom family. We pray for all the preparations, and we look forward to celebrating the life of Emily with them next weekend. We pray now as we go our separate ways, you would go before us, guide and direct us by your Spirit. Provide those divine appointments that we might share the love of Christ with those that come across our paths. And we, may we know and continually rest in the reality that we are loved by you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.